One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Well, hey there, family. Bet you didn't expect to find me here, now did you? I want to invite y'all on in. Have a seat now. Now, for those of you that might not know me, my name is Steve Shell, also known as the narrator from Old Gods of Appalachia. But I'm not here to talk about the old gods. I'm here to talk about gods like the Saint Electric, the Trawler Man, and all those that hang above and below in the world of the Silt Verses. Welcome to the Silt Versus Q&A. As I said, my name is Steve Shell, and it is my honor and uh, just a blessing to be here to host this Q&A, doing a little retrospective on season one of the Silt Versus. I am joined by a good chunk of the Silt Versus family, some if not all, and as I understand it, some folks will be chiming in here and there to answer some questions uh, as they come and as they're specifically addressed. I'm going to let them go around the round table and say their names and let you know who they are, if that's all right with them. In the order of which you are called, disciples, if you would, please. Hello, Steve. I'm John Ware. I am the writer on The Salt Verses and the voice of David on I'm in an SQ. I'm Minna. I'm the other half of SQ Productions, and I work on The Salt Verses and SQ with John. And I'm Maeve, and I am the voice of Carpenter in The Silt Verses. Uh, and yes, like you mentioned, we have a couple of other answers from uh, Binar, who's not with us, who's at home in Oklahoma, and our audio editor, Sammy Holden. So yeah, their answers will be dropped seamlessly in through the magic of audio editing. Oh, welcome, family. Welcome, one and all. Now, I have to say, y'all, if you follow uh, if you follow our show on social media, you know that we are big fans of the Silt Verses. We've been retweeting them and pushing them out in your faces, down your throats, slipping them in your mailboxes, uh, hotel dresser drawers, anywhere we can put them for you to find. Um, this is one of my favorite podcasts of the past couple of years. We overlap in beautiful ways and in ways that are completely distinct, and it makes me so happy that this show is out there. Are y'all ready to jump into some Q's and some A's? And um, I encourage you to answer cryptically and, and frustrate people with mysterious things. All right. All right. So our first question comes from Marcus. It's an obligatory 
what was the inspiration question, but what was the inspiration? Were the verses always mulling around in the back of your mind? Or did you one day happen to look at the coffee maker and think, hmm, there could be a God for this and all the corporate bureaucracy it represents? So the idea for the Silk Verses came shortly after we'd finished I Am In Askew, which was our last project, which was very much a, a surreal horror piece uh, where every episode, kind of a quantum leap of horror, where every episode can be a shifting scenario for the main character. And that's ideal in so many ways because every episode you can come up with something different. And I think we were a little bit scared that we wouldn't be able to come up with a story where you could have that same flexibility and that same shifting narrative. And we started thinking about gods and how gods and deities could provide that. And then we were watching True Detective Series 1, which is a really good show in many ways, but also infuriating in so many others. The folk horror is there to provide some scary figurines, uh, but there's no mythology there. It's cosmic horror, but it never bothers going into why it's cribbed from Robert E. Chambers and the, the King in Yellow. Uh, and I, I really hated that. And I love the idea of doing something that starts from exactly the same place but goes in completely the opposite direction, where it's two people gathered around a body examining it for clues. But they're not detectives. They're not there to solve a crime. They're there because actually they too are followers of whatever deity and that we would go into the mythology of it in a, in a, in a much more advanced way and it would be about the banality of folk horror, that this is a world where the Wicker Man logic really works. If you burn me to death in a Wicker Man, it really will make your harvest of apples grow better and having that as the foundational logic for the entire universe. Yeah, I remember us having that conversation about True Detective, actually, which in season one has all this beautiful religious iconography, which really brings in a lot of the tension and the fear and the horror of that first season. And at, towards the end, rather than in being part of the world um, in a meaningful way, it's actually just cast aside which, as John has said, is really one of the more, more disappointing parts of um, season one, which I do, again, have to reiterate, though, is, is actually quite an excellent TV series. And working on the Silk Verses made us want to go for that absurdist take on what would reality be like if it had a religious filter over it. And the expansion of the world grew quite organically, um, touching every part of it. And I've got to say, um, the corporate elements are actually my favourite part of it. True Detective season one is something near and dear to our hearts as well, uh, just in terms, because there are antlers involved. And, and I remember, I, and John almost had just a kind of counterpoint, I had the opposite reaction. By the time I realized we weren't going to get a supernatural ending, which I think I kind of, I, I personally, not saying yay me, but like I clicked onto a little bit earlier than a lot of, than some folks did. I was frustrated by people who were begging for the supernatural ending just because I'm like, it can just be, it is okay. A lot of people are tired of this, but it can just be that humanity is horrible. I suppose for me, it's not even the, the thematic element, which as you say, it's perfectly acceptable to have the horrors of human beings. It's more about what Ursula K. Le Guin uh, used to speak about uh, a great deal, which is where more grounded, uh, quote-unquote, literary types like to play around in the shallows of genre to make references to gothic horror or fantasy or science fiction in a way that they feel enhances the cleverness of their work. But nevertheless, uh, when it comes to the idea of going full genre to really diving into the strangeness and absurdity and the high concept nature of horror, they tend to scoff at that. And I think if you look at the showrunner's interviews around True Detective Season 1, 
that again was something that just really at the time got my back up because you had this creator who was profiting really from the use of Chambers and Ligotti and all these references, uh, but who nevertheless had a bit of a sneery attitude to the idea that his show was not a horror show, okay, it was a meaningful human drama. That at the time, I think, got me angry enough to want to make a show. I feel like you're spoiling this show for a lot, because I personally haven't seen True Detective Season 1. Uh, if you haven't watched True Detective Season 1, get on HBO Max or HBO Now or your VPN or whatever you need and go watch it because... Hey, Steve, hey, hey, Silverus' time. <laughs> it's Silverus' time. Ah, that's true. Very true, very true. But uh, it, it, but to tie back, it, I love the way you guys did this and dropping us in the middle of this world. It's actually my favorite, my fa- one of my favorite things of just being dropped into the middle of like okay what's this okay there seems to be this the radio station is this and like it created this lived-in world that i didn't have any choice but to like swim through and wade through and and i i love the richness of that experience i love what you got what you all did there okay cool next question with carpenter and faulkner there's really a fascinating dynamic how did that come to be? Purely from an idea, and then to page, and then to voice acting? Or did that change once the actors became familiar with the characters? So Carpenter and Faulkner's dynamic, is it was it invented? John, did you did you invent that in the writing? Did that camaraderie camaraderie is a strong word. That rapport, did that naturally develop in the writing as the actors got a hold of it? I think it was a little bit of both. I think, again, we started with the idea of the, the odd couple detectives, like uh, the two characters in True Detective Season 1, where they're complete opposites, they're an ill fit for each other. And that very that very easily lent itself to the idea of someone that has been in the faith a long time and is getting very, very sick of it, and the young, naive convert. And I think once, once we started writing it, it then became very clear that that wasn't enough, that if Faulkner is just innocent and naive, that's a little bit boring because... There's nowhere for him to go. So I think then it became the idea that, well, he thinks he's a master manipulator. He comes across as innocent and naive, and he kind of is, but he's also got it in his head that he's outsmarting everyone. And then obviously just Maeve and B came in and they crushed it. And that, it caused some changes and it caused some things not to change. Carpenter was always quite fully formed. But with, with Faulkner, I think B was so likable that we almost then had to bring Faulkner back from the brink a bit, make him a bit less villainous, because... People, people liked Faulkner too much for him to go full maniac. He drowned his brother. <laughs> it was kind of an accident. Mm, I suppose when you're looking at kind of the moral baseline of the world in general, where is where is that on the scale, really? Well, you, you, your granny did put you in the creek with cut with bleeding ears and a burlap sack over your head to see if you would get eaten. What's the standard, you know? Yeah, with, 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 uh, with Faulkner... I loved it because Faulkner has that zeal that, as someone who grew up in an evangelical, very born-again Christian household, uh, that zeal of, this was for me. This sacrifice was made for me. This light, this good news is for me. You know, and like, and like it, can, it, take, it takes a pure and naive heart to a certain degree for those roots, those seeds to take root. And B does that so well in just like, the telling of, of, Falk, of Faulkner killing his brother is like, I believe this because I know this person. I know this person that has found the truth. So I grew up evangelical. I'm not anymore. But the way I got, I got people to stop wanting to strangle my family members who are very pamphlet evangelical is like, imagine you thought you found the answer. Imagine you had the truth that fixed you. Wouldn't you want to make people accept that? Wouldn't you want to 
spread that news. It's called the gospel means the good news. It's all there with Faulkner. There, Faulkner is Faulkner becomes the good news in uh, in so many ways. Yeah, and I just want to say that I, I completely agree that the plot twist in terms of the death to Faulkner, I think, is one of the best. Sweet, what is it? A bait and switch, fish bait and switch <laughs> uh, of the series. And again, B is so incredibly likable. Uh, you know, fantastic voice actor, and just the delivery is is so well done that absolutely Faulkner becomes an incredibly likable character, and uh, it it really makes the thing it 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 makes him more an, of an understandable character. I think, and I think people hugely relate to him not relate but they definitely they love him it's great <laughs> he's unhinged the journey of Faulkner as kind of in my mind cherubic fresh faced you know like how could you not have your faith sister and by the end painted in the symbols wearing looks like the robe calling forth you know the wither mark abomination it's just like that's a journey how it started how it's going this is it and and personally for me as I, in, in terms of acting out Carpenter it just um it really brings depth to uh the way i play off b especially when we're having those very antagonistic conversations because in a way it is almost like kicking a puppy sometimes you know she's really taking bites out of faulkner um and the, it just it just brings so much depth to their interactions as well indeed indeed it's it's it's, it's believable it's real it's tangible and jumping off that elowen asks I was hoping you might be able to talk about what themes you like concerning religion and how that relates to what you've done in the Silt Verses. One of my favorite parts of the Silt Verses, it actually talks about religion in a very honest way, that in a way we rarely do if you are religious. And disclaimer, I, I am in my own way religious, but it is a very individual thing, isn't it? Having faith that these words you're throwing out into uh, the world into the night on a daily or weekly basis will have some effect that there is someone or something out there listening even though you never get an answer you never get a response um, unless you are looking for it or you specifically tell yourself that uh, event x or result y is is an answer and i think that's the thing about the silvers is it just brings that to life. You've got these two individuals when, when it begins um, seeking out this God that may or may not answer. And they've clearly been traveling for quite a while. And when the God does answer, it's incoherent and it doesn't make sense and it's never quite what they want or what they need. And I think it's, it's really honest, as I said, uh, about religion in a way that, yeah, I don't think many things really are. Yeah, I think what Mona said is completely accurate. Uh, I think the show also, in some ways that are just not going to become clear to listeners, is really delving into my own personal baggage when it comes to religion, uh, to faith and faithlessness. I mention it in the law book that you can get on Patreon, but in particular, I think, when I was about 13, I had a real strange Faulkner moment. Um, it was very peculiar. I was at a sleepover with friends, and one kid in the middle of the night just suddenly decided that he was the Messiah and all of us were his disciples. And everyone just went along with it. Um, a very peculiar collective delusion. But the funniest thing, I think, is the sense of not just terror, but also relief that comes when it seems like the skies have parted and 
suddenly there is order to the universe and there are answers uh, and everything makes sense. And when that dissipates, when you wake up the following morning and you go, yeah, what, what on earth were we all talking about? That's a, a real loss. That's a sense of mourning because everything is returned to chaos. And you wonder, how, how can I ever get back to a place where the world makes sense as it did for me in those, those fleeting moments? I thought you were going to confess to drowning one of your best friends, and I was uh, very going to stop this recording immediately. <laughs> um, so I have a question here. Great answer. Great answer. I have a question here from Jax uh, from Mayvan B. Uh, how did you prepare for your roles as Carpenter and Faulkner? What do you hope for them in the future? Honestly, one of the best things about playing Carpenter was that as written, she is one of the most complex and deep characters I have ever had the pleasure of playing. Um, so honestly, I would say, did I have to do a lot of preparation to play Carpenter? No, not really, because she was right there on the page and it was just my job to bring her to life. I suppose I thought about the person she was and how that person would act on a day-to-day -day basis and how they would interact with the people around them. And honestly, the way that was, was incredibly wary and absolutely done with everyone. <laughs> so hopefully that comes across as I play her. Um, but then again, you have these incredibly touching and vulnerable moments in her monologues, whereby she's talking about her own fears and her connection with her God. So what's incredibly lovely about playing Carpenter is you get this brilliant dichotomy between this character who is outwardly extremely gruff, insulting perhaps, uh, and inwardly you also get to portray that vulnerability and and reveal that inner self. So, uh, but again, you know, it's all there on the page. John writes it and I just do it. Um, I will say that when I am voicing Carpenter, um, again, I just have to sit there for a second and I have to bring myself down because I'm up here, but Carpenter is down here. So I bring myself down and then I think, I am very, very tired. And then that is how I read my lines. <laughs> so that's, that's basically how I do it. <laughs> so when we first got cast, we got these really cool character breakdowns with their histories and fears and likes and dislikes and relationships. And it was fantastic because we only had the first two episodes in full, like script-wise. And we, I, I think we had the synopses of like the first six. So studying that character breakdown was a huge part of my prep. Uh, one of the notes I still remember without having to even look at it is that uh, he's a bit like Walter White in Breaking Bad. That there's this distance between how he thinks he's coming off and how he's actually coming off. I loved that note. That, that delighted me. Um, because I actually went and watched uh, quite a bit of scenes from Breaking Bad Season 1 and studied Brian Cranston's kind of indignant, stumbling, weirdly self-assured intensity to help develop Faulkner's non-monologue delivery. I also, I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again just in case I didn't, uh, I found ways to justify everything Faulkner thinks and does. There are parts of him I definitely resonate with without having to justify anything, like growing up rural and isolated and desperate for meaning and being willing to destroy yourself to find it. Like, that's a place I understand, and I can that I can transpose onto him. 
like, but for some of the other parts, like, I swear I've never drowned anyone. Um, I tried to tap into emotional equivalents and transpose those because even if Faulkner regrets something that he's done, he always, like, feels his actions are right and justified and probably divinely ordained in the moment. I think my only hope for Faulkner's future is that I get to see his journey to the natural conclusion, um, whatever that is, and I'm... I have no idea what it'll be, but I'm excited to see it, and I hope that in doing so, that this character can keep bringing people joy. Uh, many people ask this question. Uh, if you had to pick or invent a god to worship from the horrific and terrifying pantheons that exist within the Silt Verses, which would you choose or invent, and why? So I, I mean, I wouldn't choose any of them because they're all horrific. If I had to invent one, there is one that I haven't used because it was kind of a really dumb joke, but we may yet fill it in in some way. But when we were coming up with gods, I loved the idea of an inert god. So you've got all these gods of the elements of kind of, you know, fire and stone and water. So could you have a god of just an inert gas? It's just argon. So it's purely experimental, but the whole point of it is that it does nothing. You pray to it and it just remains perfectly stable and affects nothing. So I think that's probably the safest god that I could possibly be worshipping, so I picked that one. That is absolutely fascinating. It's really interesting. So the idea is if it does something, something explodes or... Yeah, just praying to it to remain exactly as it is the entire time. Uh, I love this question. Holy shit. And it's also super hard to answer because there's a lot of gods in the Silt Verses. And there's a lot we're probably never even going to meet. But I'd probably go seek out one of the wild gods, like one of the stray gods, I find that concept really powerful. And I know this is going to sound like super contradictory to everything I do because I'm a voice actor and I also never shut up. But I think I'd try to find a god of empty places. Places that should rightfully have people but don't. Not a god of like abandoned places because the Cairn Maiden has that covered. She's got that I mean, I was actually kind of tempted to pick her when I was thinking about this, but I'm thinking more of like a focus on the stillness rather than the inevitable decay of all things, even though that is choice. Do love that. But I'm more thinking like the silence at the bottom of a swimming pool or an empty supermarket at night, that moment where it feels like the world has just finished exhaling and hasn't inhaled yet. Maybe what about you? Uh, I, so I was thinking about this and honestly I suppose the god that I would be most interested in worshipping in the Silver Verses the public transport system in Ireland is very poor and if there was a, I've, I know you know we know that there are poor souls who have been turned into saints who work the, the is it a tube or is it trains John actually how did you envisage that train it is a train that's right um, so Honestly, if, if you could, if there was a god in the background there, which I presume there is, I would be wholly on board with a god who could get me from A to B. <laughs> a holy god of transport. Mona, what about you? I would choose um, a god of grief. Grief is just this inexplicable emotion that you can't explain. When everyone, you know, when people say love or they say anger, I think people have more of a shared identity of what that means. But I think grief is just so individual and grief can come along in various guises. So I think a god of grief and when you pray to this god, um, what 
he or she or it will do is it won't take away your grief, but it will dissipate you. And it's actually based on one of my favorite um, uh, Somali folklore kind of stories where a father is loses his son. He goes to a crossroad and he prays to God and he says, please, may I have the energy to keep looking for my son? And the God turns him into droplets of air. And so he just spends the rest of eternity not only trying to keep himself together, but also look for his son. And that's what this God of grief would do to you. Don't think I would subscribe to that one, not even the free trial, but... Uh, cheerful. Very cheerful. <laughs> I would have a teach to each their own. All right, so Marcus would like to ask, can you take us through the general conception of an episode? Who formulates the wider plot? Who writes it? Who edits? That kind of stuff. The writing is done um, by John, uh, unless you're on our Patreon, and then the Patreon is... Um, done by both of us so some of the stories have been written by me and some have been written by John but we work together on the the plotting insofar as you know John and I will kind of sit together he'll say this is where the story is going and then we'll kind of attack it together we'll say you know does this make sense um uh, does the flow of the episode make sense lots of kind of very boring plotting parts of it you know is this exciting enough is this an episode with too much dialogue you know really keeping the listener in mind it's so valuable having Mona as a creative partner because I'm such a bad collaborator uh, and so my first instinct when she says there's a problem here you need to fix this is always to go no it's fine it's it, it needs to be like that for reasons I can't properly articulate or explain so yeah, I, I have to really thank her for her immense patience <laughs> in working with me on this. Uh, and working on season two together is, I'm really enjoying it so far. How's the skew? It's still standing. Has it been skewed or skewered? Hey! That was terrible. All right, next question. Augustine, and a similar question from Peter. What was the hardest part about working on the show? What was the easiest, the most fun? I think the hardest part is that this is such a bigger undertaking than either of us expected. We started writing it, we wanted to do something a little bit different at Askew, and then I think it's just the sheer amount of work involved with bringing an episode to life and making sure that our cast are kept um, you know, informed and happy and making sure that it all kind of comes off along with all the logistics. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, Askew was a show about loneliness and isolation, and this is a show, I guess, about other people in some way. And that really comes to light in the fact that the easiest part of the show is working with so many wonderful people. Maeve, B, Jimmy, Lucy, and everyone. It's so incredible to, to get such great acting out of so many great people, so much energy, so much inspiration. And then the hardest part is not letting these people down. And, you know, we let people down all the time, but just making sure that we keep the schedule, getting everyone paid giving the right kind of direction and feedback. It's such a vast undertaking, whereas it used to be just the two of us in a room saying, you need to do that again, you've pronounced it wrong, and then uh, that was it. Yeah, I, I, I want to I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, validate you on that and, and kind of speak up for, on behalf of people who don't create podcasts to understand for people who do create specifically audio drama and fiction podcasts. It's especially if you once you start gaining some momentum slash attention slash fandom, family, cult status, whatever you want to call it, uh, blind worshippers dwelling in a cave far beneath the earth, talking to an ancient fireworm, all those things. I'm so glad they can pick up podcasts. <laughs> well, the fireworm has great Wi-Fi. You just have to. Yeah, it can be a very lonely, very isolating experience. 
it's y'all. I, I really want to give props to the Silt Versus. Number one, when I first fell in love with this show, uh, it was so ambitious because like we do a lot of single narrator. A lot of the times, there's a lot of collaboration, but it's just me and my voice. You all like start in a car, going to a diner, and then there's a river. And but I'm just like, this is a big swing. The overall just stones on this show. You're completely right, Steve. We we are idiots. Yeah, complete hubris. You know, let's just go for it. It, it. it won't. It won't be that difficult. I always say, you guys do something. You guys don't do something, and I love you for it. Everybody, it seems like, has a gimmick. Uh, Magnus did the tape recorder. Uh, found footage. People do the walkie-talkie effect or the tape recorder effect. Something to cover that sound compression. We have our spooky soundscapes that drone under us. And I did those mainly originally to be like, this is going to get squashed. I may as well give them an interesting layer to hear, you know, to, to fill in the gaps. Y'all don't do that. Y'all aren't relying on found footage. You're not relying on on anything other than, and this is this is a, a push that I'm so proud to be your friend and your colleague and your comrade. This is a push in podcasting. We need to be able to say in fiction podcasting, I don't need a device to tell a story. And no, and no offense to anybody doing found footage or if that's your jam. No, no, I don't really mean this overly critical. But I think for a long time, people have felt confined to, oh, well, it's got to be, there has to be a reason that we're, we're doing a podcast. There's a whole genre of what I call, oops, I podcasted my own spooky demise. Uh, where someone is doing a podcast about something and, oh no, that podcast went wrong and we get to witness it. And there's great shows like Video Palace and uh, Limetown that do that and do that really well. But I want us as a genre to be able to be like, you know what? We can just tell a freaking story. I totally agree. I actually totally, and it's so funny because a lot of people, for example, I'm in London. We're headed to the London Podcast Festival. So obviously people were asking me, why are you going to London? And I was explaining, explaining what I do. And, you know, so many people, when they think podcast, they think two people having a chat, you know, or, or talking about a, a niche interest or history or something like that. And the way I always explain audio drama podcasting, I, I essentially explain it. It's like a radio play. And the thing about most radio plays is they are exactly as you've just described. They originally take their setting from theatre. So obviously in theatre, there's no reason to explain the setting. Um, there's no reason for this play to be taking place. You're just sitting down and walk to watching a play. And it's the same thing with uh, radio plays. You're just listening to a play that's happening on the radio. And I totally agree. I think people should be comfortable doing that in podcast form. Because I, I think the other really interesting thing with horror audio drama is that it's partly evolved from creepypasta, from kind of Slender Man and Marble Hornets, and this, this genre of you are discovering the abandoned blog of someone that had a horrible experience and has now died. And honestly, sometimes there's nothing creepier than the idea that you're listening to someone who's trapped and they only have a tape recorder. That that can also be an incredibly creepy situation too. I'm a big fan of those. Oh yeah, no, like like I said, one of the most terrifying things I ever read pre-podcast was it was in a day when te in the days when texting was still fairly novel, and like it was still like a, an emerging thing, late '90s, whatever. There was a thread. I don't know if it was on where it was i found it long after the fact of someone who was going to a house and sending text messages to their friend talking about what they found and it starts out with them typing paragraphs of like oh yeah the porch is really creepy and the door opens slowly and whatever and then as they get up the stairs to where whatever the messages are just like it burns the light sinned the light sinned the light sinned like those kind of things and and I never felt like, the, in the same time, like that alternate reality gaming 
ever got its proper due of leaving like geocache clues around a city to find to tell a story. A friend and I were designing one, which might make, make a good podcast one day, uh, about what happens uh, in a Judeo-Christian setting to when all the guardian angels are removed from Earth in preparation of Armageddon. And some of those angels try to resist by leaving journals and notes and stickers behind and creating that world. We can talk about developing that. Moving forward, Judith and Sam, the Silt Verses presents a polytheistic world of fluid cults where everyone chooses their god. Am I right in thinking you were inspired by depictions of polytheism such as ancient Greek myth? Yeah, completely. Uh, one of the scariest stories I ever read when I was a kid was the, the myth of Arachne. It's a lady that was too good at weaving, so she really pissed off the gods because she was too good, and she gets turned into a spider. And it's that the arbitrary cruelty of deities who are not, um, they're not good, they're not just, they are petty and small and weird. And even in the sense of their mercy, like the Somali folktale man was talking about, I love and hate the stories in Ovid, where it's things like, Apollo was chasing this poor woman, so the tree spirits took mercy on her and turned her into a willow. You know, that's, that's not mercy. That's a really weird definition yeah. of mercy. That's a horrible fate. The idea that actually a god's definition of a gift that they're bestowing upon us might be so alien to us that it's something horrible and monstrous is really, really fascinating to me. I, I have to think of Medusa. You know, Medusa was, a, was sexually assaulted by Poseidon, and she was a handmaiden of Athena. Like, he violated her, and Athena interrupted them and stopped it. But since she was impure by her rules now, she had to get turned into a gorgon. You know, and she couldn't punish uh, Poseidon because Poseidon's her brother and her equal and whatever. But, oh, my poor servant, I can't kill you and put you out of your misery, or I can't, like, restore you or whatever. But I can't make you a snake-haired lady that turns people into stone. Ural's concept of sainthood, of making saints horrifying uh just uh yeah the giant maggot thing uh i died i died i am no longer here but i i think all folk horror really can be traced back to greek myth right so euripides the Bacchae, i really th think of as the art uh, as the the progenitor of all folk horror where it's about the agent of civility and rationality uh pentheus realizing that the stable foundations are in fact not so stable and that something that is irrational and primal and completely inexplicable is going to rise up and devour him. That, I think, is just the, the line that goes all the way back through from ancient history to the Wicker Man, Midsummer, Old Gods of Appalachia. So Celeste wants to ask the audio designer, Sammy, I'm really curious how the audio Foley work went through season one, since there was a fair amount of nature sounds mixed in with unnatural nature sounds from saints and such. Uh, thank you for a wonderful season. Hi, this is Sammy. Normally... I listened to the episode second after reading the script first and then I'll bring it together. I'll kind of mark off where all the sound effects are. The actors are so wonderful that over half of the work is done once they've recorded their bits. During one of the early episodes, I was asked about a particular creature, the sound of a particular creature by John and I wouldn't tell him how I made it. I think it was the uh, snare dogs. I really enjoyed making their sounds. I also enjoyed putting together the sound of the garbage jump, which is a bit of a weird one, because why would, why would anybody enjoy a garbage jump? But building up that kind of environment from literally nothing. 
so it, it registers as a garbage dump that then has like a secret sort of a submerged neon corridor. When I was putting that together, I could visualize it and that really helped. Like I work very visually, I edit kind of visually with the sound, if that makes sense. Like I, I can imagine a picture very clearly and I hope that that comes across. I think it does based on the lovely fan art that I've seen. Morgan wants to know, how much did working on I Am In A Skew help you prepare for the Silt Verses? Not at all. <laughs> yeah, working on A Skew was just John and I recording together. It was very much, it was much easier to control because it was only two voices. And as John mentioned earlier, it would just be one or the other saying, hey, you pronounced that wrong. Or, you know, can you just read down a slightly different inflection or a tone? And then we had, as you were saying earlier, Steve, we had that, that sort of backing sound to, to hide the imperfections of what we didn't know how to do on Audacity. It was the rain, that kind of creepy rain in a skew that people really loved, which, you know, now we can give away the state secret. It was a choice to hide the fact that we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> or, the or, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, it, and, and again, we've got these unbelievable incredible voice actors who've joined us and they've made it so much simpler in some ways but then also so much harder because we really have to make sure that we're honoring the craft and the skill they're bringing to to the characters so i would say you know it's it's prepared us in terms of being able to to know that we can produce and that our, and that our work and that John's work is is viable for audio drama, but I'm not sure it did much more than that. What, what do you think? I, I think it really helped me because I'm incredibly anxious and awkward, and Askew had you know for the first few months just sort of downloads and the double figures, so it really helped me to prepare for putting something out into the world and seeing a reaction to it. Both in terms of when we did askew, you see someone that says, I didn't think it was very scary, and you lie down on the floor for three weeks and just stare at the ceiling. I can now relatively easily shrug off people that go, actually, I didn't really like this bit, or I didn't like the show. Uh, but also setting boundaries. With askew, I remember someone posted a fan fiction. It was a slash fan fiction that combined Dave from askew with the main character from the Magnus Archives. And I've never had anyone create anything that was fan fiction my work. So I think I jumped onto Archive of Your Own and was in the comments going, like, yeah, I love this. And then just got a very awkward response from someone saying, yeah, I didn't really think you were going to see this. And it was just that realization of just because someone's created something about the show doesn't mean they want to hear from you. You've got to give people their own space and just step back from them and let them create what they want to create without making it weird. So that was that was a very useful experience. Yeah, and just on that last point, I suppose, not in terms of myself, this is the first time I, I've kind of been a part of anything that involves people talking about your work but not necessarily including you in the conversation. So I myself have decided, you know, I do, I pop into the Silk Versus tag on Twitter, I, I be looking, but I've decided that unless the Silk Versus itself is actually tagged in the tweet or unless they've tagged me, I don't engage with it because I'm, you know, maybe that's not for me. You know, they just want to have a chat about Carpenter and that's not I'm not included in that conversation and that's fine so I, I so you know just in case I don't know if anyone would be thinking why isn't she talking to me to, oh, please I love to talk to you but I, I respect that people want to chat about the show that they enjoy amongst themselves and some things I'm not invited to and that's fine I guess next question the trawler man's pet fish asks assuming that it's possible or there's an equivalent in the TSV universe did Carpenter ever have an emo phase? 
I can't help but think her teenage self would have been part of some kind of counterculture, considering everything she went through. Oh, well, I, I mean, that's just it. I was, I'm not the arbiter of the canon of the show. I love the idea. Um, and I do agree. Uh, I was talking about it earlier with Mona and Carpenter has so much rage inside her and she's not in a rebellious phase. It's just who she is. She's angry at the world. And definitely, I feel, particularly in your younger years, that certainly comes out in a form of self-expression. And I, I do just love the idea of, of baby goth Carpenter. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fab? Definitely, I feel in terms of who she is as a person, it would have to be the lowest effort, lowest maintenance. You know, I'm talking about kitchen sink hair dye and uh, just doing the eyeliner the way I did my eyeliner, which is by gripping it like a crayon and drastically drawing massive circles around your eyes. And that's it. We're <laughs> done for the day. <laughs> I, I can imagine that, I think I'm cribbing this from a Discord character, she would have bought herself some like some fantasy Doc Martens with really hard toes so that she could just kick people if they annoyed her. And that would be her fashion statement. Yeah, I was, yes, yes. Lots of really old Joy Division and Depeche Mode records and uh, maybe a lot of early U2. I'm not, uh... all right, awesome, excellent. Uh, Songbird, question for Sammy again. Season one had a lot of whispering and some pretty horrible worm sounds. Are you doing all right? Are you okay, man? Am I doing all right? Am I like, okay? Yes, I'm doing very well, thank you. And I'm looking forward to season two. And I'm looking forward to creating more horrible, nasty sounds for you all to enjoy. Ezra asks, how did you all think of the character names? The theme and symbolism of the names being Jobs is so fascinating to me. And I wonder how y'all thought of it. What does the Faulkner do other than write about Mississippi? A Faulkner is what it sounds like, so it's someone that handles falcons. So I think it was very much that we wanted to have this kind of vaguely medieval uh, journey narrative to it. So Pilgrim's Progress, the Fairy Queen, uh, Gawain and the Green Knight, kind of the, the old stories of people going out on these religious quest narratives. But we also wanted to try and keep the associations and parallels with the real world as, as, as avoided as much as possible. So just going with kind of very simple words that have associations with what that person does, but aren't necessarily, other than being medieval uh, English names tied to a particular culture, uh, was a good way of getting around that, we thought. So Rowan Jack asks, who is your favorite character to write and why? Including all the side characters, not just the main ones. Love the show. Uh, it, it's Carpenter, uh, because- Yeah, it is. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> I should have said someone really kind of cool and, you know, it's this character that has one line in episode nine who's the most fun character. No, it's Carpenter because the way that she sees the world and other people is the way I see the world and other people. The way that she struggles sometimes with uh, attention from other people and with making conversation with other people is exactly how I feel. But she gets to do it and be a badass. So it's, it's very much just wish fulfillment of this is who I would be if I was, you know, witty and could make it through a sentence without stammering. Okay, now I have to put a bit in here for Hayward. And hear me out, this isn't propaganda, but he is actually one of the most human characters in the whole series. I think that he is dissatisfied and deeply unhappy with his place in life, very similarly to Carpenter, actually. And he is going through the motions while internally on a different journey and I won't give away too much of what happens in the upcoming season but there is a lot of growth for him and I think I've got, I've got a big soft spot for Hayward. 
So Gatsby asks, what's been your most surprising slash your favorite fan reaction to something in the show? Um, I think mine has to be the way people reacted to episode four. Carpenter goes a bit crazy and, and says to, to Charity, you know, I, I want to know whose house I've burnt down. Um, and, and I love the reaction of that because I think that was the first, it was only obviously a few episodes in, but that was the first like real buzz that happened on Tumblr and people got really excited. And I think that's when the art really started ramping up. I kind of can talk about the show as a whole. I think I want to come back to that point of art because it's just so surprising and delightful to see all the various arts that people are creating, the, the songs that people have created. It's just people are taking time out of their day to to create art based on this audio drama. And I, every time we see something and we, we see it on Tumblr and Instagram, yeah, it's such an honor. Let me start off with saying we have the best fans and I love all your reactions. All of them. I love the tweets. I love the Tumblr posts. I love the art. I love the music, the playlists. The cosplay, I mean, you guys are just amazing. Honestly, you guys are phenomenal, and I love each and every one of you. But the most surprising fan reaction, I think, might be also one of my favorites, is that people actually, like, have decided that Carpenter and Faulkner and Paige are this awful little found family. Just a dysfunctional little found family. It's perfect. I adore it. Like, A, I'm a sucker for the found family trope. I love it. And also, that was, like, immediately the joke that me and Maeve and Lucille made when we kidnapped Paige. (laughs) That we were three best friends on a terrible, no good, very bad road trip. And I, I love the fan base seeing that and taking it further and... I mean, they don't, they all deserve a good found family. I, I, I think they do. Um, I don't know if they're going to get it, but I think they deserve it. <laughs> I was going to say, I, my the most surprising reaction I had was actually Sid Wright, which I think is down to David Esther's amazing performance, where yeah. we had this big twist lined up that obviously Sid Wright is, spoiler, going to transcend and become the prophet of the new god of sleep. But I didn't realize that people would really like the character up to that point. I thought it would just be going on in the background and people wouldn't really pay attention to it. But even as early as Sid Wright turned up, people were just, they loved him and they were excited by him. So that was one big surprise. What wasn't, what was a surprise at first was Faulkner's name. So we said that Faulkner's brothers were going to be called Eddie and Charlie, but I didn't want Faulkner's name to end in E as well because he's already a younger character. I didn't want people kind of infantilizing him in this big emotional scene in episode 14. So I thought, okay, uh, what's, what's the opposite of a name that ends in E? Uh, Richard. You know, Richard's a sort of a strong, grown-up name. And then I listened to the episode, and I already knew people are going to hate this. And they absolutely <laughs> did. It was on Tumblr. That whole scene, everyone loved it. But there were just people going, yeah, he's not Richard. I, I reject this from my reality. He has another name. Don't know what it is, but it's not Richard. So this is probably my favorite question in scanning these, because I'm not sure how... I, I could not answer this question. Um, this is from Miss Trashcan. Does the story take any inspiration from Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis? I couldn't help be reminded of it in terms of the story's themes, and Carpenter especially reminds me of Orwell. It absolutely did. So it was a massive steal from C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, which is a brilliant novel, which is very much about the the uncertainty and the unknowability of the the divine. Uh, And probably because 
Lewis was a Christian, it's a lot more positive than Silk Versus is. You know, basically coming to the conclusion of, if we cannot understand the gods or know the gods, it's only because we are imperfect. We are not in a condition, until we have true faces, we can never look on their faces. A brilliant book and very much uh, inspirational. Kale, which is a occasionally delicious leafy plant, would like to know, what's the internal breakdown of folks who are for and against the Silt Versus being a road trip buddy comedy? Road trip buddy comedy! Road trip buddy comedy! <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, Steve, before we came on the, the recording, which was when you're looking at the reaction to a show, people lean into certain elements of it, and often they want to have fun with it and turn it into something that's quite kind of, yeah, they find entertainment in the lighthearted bits of it. And that's wonderful, and, but you've got to be able to remember that that's its own thing. But you've got to always kind of go, actually, well, wait, this isn't, it's not a found family story. It is, to some extent, about the limitations of ever understanding other people. Go, okay, it's, it's a buddy road trip comedy, but, but it's not. So every time you think like you might be going down that road, grabbing the steering wheel and just driving it off the cliffs in a much more grim direction is the, the way to go. No, and I absolutely agree with that. And I think, like, as the cast, totally feel the same. We have fun with the concept, but I, no one wants the show. The show is great as is, you know. I think that's exactly what I meant earlier about fan fiction being its own thing. Remembering that people can enjoy taking this in another direction. It doesn't mean they want the core show to be that. That they're making their own thing. And it doesn't. And it doesn't mean that we as creators have to make our shows that. You can do some fan service and work an in joke in, or or have you know have a nod to something. That's one thing. But when when you start to let, when they start to drive, it becomes a different story. Speaking of them, a mysterious unknown person uh, asked, "What made you decide to go with an interactive ensemble cast for Silt Versus rather than sticking to the one-person monologue you used with the Skew? Was it just about resources, or was Silt Versus just different from the start? And which do you prefer?" Ooh, which do we prefer? I'm going to come back to that. Um... I think it, I think again we mentioned this earlier. It really was that we'd already we'd already done this queue. We'd already done just the two of us, and um, neither of us certainly. I'm not very good at accents. John does a fair bit better than than I do. But it, if we were going to just go ahead and it be two voices, it would have to be probably us two, um, and then you'd be having us two try and voice multiple different characters because we needed to expand. You know, we didn't want to do just a first person narration. Again, we wanted to do something a little bit different so that we weren't, you know, just a one trick pony really. And that kind of drove um, the the choice. So we thought we'd put a call out there and we'd see, you know, if we don't, if we didn't get any, I remember one of the first bit, bits that we put on the website, we'd said, you know, we're just going to give this a go. And if there's no interest, we'll just quietly wrap it up. And I think as soon as we put out the call for audition, we had something like 70, 80 people auditioning. We thought, oh my God, people are actually interested. And from there, it kind of, it kind of snowballed. Yeah, it, it brings, it brings, a, it brings a different level of depth to the production. Um, uh, and, and yeah, it, and like I said, that's one of the things I love about the show is just the ambition and the scope uh, that you fools have thrown yourselves into. <laughs> uh, Jax asks, tell us about the religious wars. How did they get started? Were propaganda gods meant to be an analog for nuclear weapons? How does one build and maintain them? That sounds like they could get spoilery, so I would respect any decision to... Uh, I... I think John wants to answer this, but I will be watching him carefully. 
I, I can't comment on how the religious wars got started because I've got no idea. But I loved the idea, thinking about how wars would work in this setting, that it would be very much about, you know, uh, the territory that people are fighting battles in. Because it, you could be, we're going to have the battle of uh, Bog Hollow Hill. There's a god that's very powerful there. And so both sides, rather than fighting each other, are both desperately praying to this god to try and get it to beat up the other side. And propaganda gods were not meant to be an analogue for nuclear weapons. They were an analogue for... Um, there's a Monty Python sketch about an experimental joke that's so powerful that it kills you. And that this joke is then... Uh, it's then weaponized and it's sent out across the battlefield, played over loudspeakers. And everyone just laughs so hard they drop down dead. And that idea of kind of a viral joke as, as viral worship that could then be weaponized against the enemy is something I thought was really fun. Uh, Gatsby would like to know, if the characters of TSV were D&D characters, what class would they be? So there was actually a, there was a Twitter thread a couple of weeks ago where it was meant to be, it was bad D&D ideas. And someone had suggested uh, it's a cleric and a paladin of the same faith, but they hate each other and they're always trying to one-up each other in the eyes of their god. And people kept tagging us going, this is the Soul Persons. So that's an easy question to answer. I think Maeve is definitely the, the paladin. So Carpenter is the kind of the, the weary paladin who's been serving her god for too long. And Faulkner is the cleric who's all about the, the fire and the fluster. We have a question that says, what's your favorite kind of scene to act out? Do you have a favorite scene you've done so far? Oh, so let me see. Uh, so what's my favorite kind of scene to act out? Well, I think we know what my favourite kind of scenes to act out are. Uh, they are either the scenes where Carpenter gets to be incredibly insulting and abrupt with people um, or goes off the rails entirely. Uh, I really love the extremes that her character can get to considering normally she's very... Uh, subdued and level spoken so when she really lets rip it's fantastic and I enjoy it hugely um, so what my favourite scene that I've done so far I think to back up what Mona was saying earlier the response to episode 4 was so fantastic because I think that is the first instance where you do get to see Carpenter go to that extreme and I definitely wanted to push it to that level and the response it got was so rewarding. And equally, I suppose every single time I've had the space and ability as an actor to stretch myself that far, the response has always been fantastic. So I think probably episode four and then the finale when I genuinely was hoarse <laughs> the next day because I, it was a level of raw anger that I felt could only be achieved through expressing the anger that's constantly coiled within Carpenter and and uh, it, that, those were honestly those were my favorite scenes to do I felt I was really pushing myself as an actor and it was brilliant to be able to portray a character to such extremes my favorite kind of scene to act out is definitely arguments anytime Carpenter and Faulkner are arguing just know that I am living I'm loving it because that's just I love to get the rhythm of the snippy back and forth, right? It's almost like doing a dance. And Maeve is an exceptional dance partner. <laughs> she's she's a joy to act with. I she, She's a joy in every regard, let's be real. And that makes the arguments that much more fun. I also really liked getting to drown Stanton, the motel owner. 
I mean, who doesn't love turning people into crustaceans? I'm, I'm team pro-carcinization, but that's just me. <laughs> and also, Calder's very good at drowning. Um, I think I tweeted about it before, but they're excellent at drowning. Everyone's super talented, and I could probably ramble for a long time about how everyone's super talented and how much I love every scene, so I will spare you all that. For Maeve, what are your favorite and least favorite things about playing Carpenter? So what I love about Carpenter is that um, as a character, she she's incredible. And immediately when I read the sample script that John and Mona put up online, as an audition piece, I just knew I absolutely had to play this character. Well, you know, it was up to them who they'd cast, but certainly I, I needed to get an audition in. Because while media is becoming more and more comfortable with female characters who are unlikable and who are abrupt and, you know, insulting, for the most part, they are portrayed as being incredibly slick and attractive and witty. You know, you've got The Devil Wears Prada, where Meryl Streep plays, you know, she's an incredibly unlikable character, but everyone loves her and she's so stylish and she's in control and she's powerful. What I love about Carpenter is that she is none of those things. She is abrupt, she is rude, she is she never tries for anyone except her, herself and even then maybe only some. And when I say try, I mean in terms of activities because God knows I certainly don't think she's putting any effort into her appearance whatsoever. And I just love it. She's not playing any political games or anything like that. She is just trying to get through the goddamn day. She gets to be that grizzled, haggard, anti-hero detective character. Uh, it, it's, it's an absolute joy just as an actress. You know, I've never had the opportunity to play that kind of character before. And it is an absolute gift to have the opportunity to do so now. So that coupled with the wild range of emotional extremes I get to try and portray, it's just been such a fantastic experience and I feel like I've really grown as an actor doing it. Um, then, you know, spin that around, my least favorite part about playing Carpenter, it honestly has nothing to do with the character. She is perfect, no notes, but John does be using some vocab sometimes that I, and I gave out to him earlier. I do have to go away and YouTube it and say, how, how does one? I think primordiality, John, was the word actually. I was saying there was a word you made me say, I'd look it up. The other one was revetment. John didn't even remember using revetment. So, <laughs> so that's the only thing. The only thing is sometimes there will be a word. Slap bang in the middle. And you know, I, I'm sitting down, I'm recording my monologue. I'm doing the carpenter voice and then I come across a word and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, it's YouTube. How do I say this? So that's it. That's the only thing. John's like, mm, and you will continue to do so. Marcus wants to know, what makes the verses especially unique as a podcast is the fantastic balance between dialogue and prose. You see this too in Old Gods of Appalachia, another favorite podcast of mine. Thank you, family. Uh, was that the plan from the beginning? Uh, to have it a spoken, to have a story spoken at us with snatches of dialogue and foley here and there to ground us in present action, or up to a point? I think part of it was honestly inexperience and lack of confidence. So obviously, we'd done a show that was all monologue all the time, with only a few tiny snippets of dialogue. I definitely didn't feel confident as a writer to do that kind of exposition to carry a completely fantastical world where there's a lot of lore that needs explaining just through dialogue. You know, doing even that first episode, but having the characters saying to each other, 
oh gee, Faulkner, look, there's a fishing boat that's made out of people who have mutated into a mast of crab flesh. I think we'd have really struggled with that. I think we start to drift away from the narration as the series goes on, which is completely not a deliberate choice, but it does kind of work because the characters become less isolated, they start to know each other a little bit better, and so having less of them being in their own heads plotting against each other probably makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, you, you return back to it, though, in a moment in the finale, because we get uh, the big thing that happens at the end of the finale from different POVs, and I thought that was an interesting choice. Uh of different characters and what they saw and how they witnessed the thing. That was that was really cool. Um, this is a question I have. I agree with Sean C. here. How do you just lose a town to the Withermark? Did nobody notice the town nearby just stopped being full of living people? Seems like a real policing failure. Not a plot hole, but a policing failure. Uh, and I love the description of Bellwethers. I love... You make crustaceans so freaking scary... And I mean, they are weird alien hell beasts and are delicious with butter. But like, um, but just, I love, I love how you use the crustacean. So how, 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 Is it, or unless that's too spoilery. No, definitely. I mean, I, I love your point there because one of the main inspirations for the show was uh, Junji Ito's Gyo, which is about fish on robotic crab legs that invade the land. And I love the idea that cosmic horror doesn't need to be all about uh, cephalopods. You know, okay, we've had Cthulhu, we've had octopus tentacles it's been done what about barnacles barnacles are really weird and creepy so just getting into the, the lesser known water life uh but yeah as for the the wither mark i think something that it comes across in parts in the show but we were going to emphasize more was the fact that this is a really fragmented world in the first episode carpenter Faulkner talk about they're going outside of the radio towers we talk about the fact that this is a world where every village has its own god that this is actually it's a country the peninsula where Everything is fragmented. There's only recently been any kind of attempt to unify it into a single nation. And most of it still doesn't function. So we were going to have a whole episode with, with Hayward trying to find out more about Carpenter and Faulkner. Getting on the line to Felix's handler. Felix then gets on the line to someone else in this vast crumbling bureaucracy. Who then calls someone else and someone else. Lots of people talking to each other and no one's communicating well and no one knows what's happening anywhere. But eventually they figure out that something's happening in Bellwethers. And in the end, we looked at it and we were like, this is going to need 10 new voice actors for characters we're never going to meet again. This is a really stupid idea, but it would have conveyed the idea a bit more strongly, I think, that this is a country where no one's talking to each other because it's been localized for centuries and that's the way that it functions. So very much the idea, I think, that, yeah, this is a world where sometimes a god wipes out a village and what you do is you put the ticker tape around it, you leave it the hell alone for a couple of uh, decades, and then you come back and you see if it's any better. And and I and I and I couldn't help but pick up on the social commentary, bad cop to good cop being like, We can do whatever we want, they'll believe us. You know, we can we can this person doesn't have to make it back to the station, we'll be heroes. Even though that's on the record that this town has been like toast for however long, you know, we're still gonna manage to kill this woman and blame this disaster on well, clearly they couldn't have caused which by the way, Withermark brilliant name for that by the way love it love it wither is such a magnificent word yes 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 yeah uh, the wither mark was one of the first things we came up with but completely on the i think also the parallel between what happens to carpenter and faulkner where in the end it's a messy story that has the kind of the human moments where things go wrong and people fuck up but it's about how it's interpreted in something that's coherent and seems logical but is completely false by both the the cops on who they want to pin bell withers on 
but also then by Mason at the very end, trying to make sense of this bizarre little journey that Carpenter and Faulkner have gone on, turning into a heroic narrative where actually they upheld the values of the faith. I, I think there's an, there's an atmosphere of weariness to the peninsula. There's an atmosphere of like, of like the cops listening to Paige. Like they just showed up like, hey, what's going on? You're going to go here and do this. All right. Yeah, it's like, like everybody's just happy to serve their God, get through the day and get home and go to sleep at night. And that brokenness of that world is there. And that's, I get the feeling some of the places Faulkner and them are aren't far from where Paige is, clearly. But Faulkner talks about them like they're this distant wonderland that they might one day see. Like, is it nice? You know, it's, it's right there. <laughs> this world is barely like, wait, nothing, no, nothing. We didn't lose a, another city today. That's a win. That's a win. Everybody praise the saint. <laughs> That's, they've got one of those at the police station. It has been how many days since we lost our last city? <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, and by the way, uh, your radio host, Sid, I... I, I am I am I, I see the mistake you made in your brain of thinking nobody would notice or nobody would pay attention. that's one of, that was one of the first things of like oh this is a lived in world this is a known person this is a presence that everyone is used to and he's the, the obnoxious fast talking DJ and he was suffering <laughs> and slowly dying and and I think within horror podcasting everybody has the radio attachment the soft spot for Cecil from Night Vale or the folks from King Falls. I think Radio DJ has an automatic default like we want that's a person we know. That's an archetype we can and to see that happen and to see the new spoiler, the new god of sleep emerge. And the way people talk about our God, you know, the great you know hamburger in the sky or the or the King Crunch or you know our or the trawler man. Like there's a reverence. But then there's like, yeah, it's the work of a god on the loose. At the same time, it's like it can be immediately commodified and packaged. That's the the bronze savant. Nah, we can we can replace that next week with like cookie the cookie monster ceramic jar we got at the thrift store. That's that's the new god. Pray to it, worship it, give it your daughters. You know. Yeah, can I just hop in really quickly to say just uh, just uh, what you were saying about uh, it being a lived-in world. The world building is incredible it's incredible and i think the best like you said i mean that's such a good way to put it it's a lived in world people live here um and i think my favorite examples of that are sid and then um the fantastic uh, fast food franchise that we see page and faulkner and i, I mean that uh, that was just brilliant uh, and the the the, the automated uh, the automated ordering system, uh, the fact that you might be, you might be sacrificed all the day, take your chances. You're like, I really, really, really want that barbecue. <laughs> I also love that, that uh, when we talk about the cloak, he's like, this is just basically, this is such a bullshit God. Everyone, everyone, everyone knows the cloak is a bullshit God. Well, you have the cloak. Yeah, we have the cloak. Fuck me. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But also, can I just say what John excels in, in my personal opinion, and I've said this before, Tim, is he is able to take the realities of living in this world just absolutely destroyed by capitalism and bureaucracy and see just, first of all, the horror of it, but also the incredible dark comedy within it. So you can see when that comes into play in the show as well, I, I just think, it again, it adds to that lived, it adds to that lived in element of the show, but it is also an incredible element of the show in, in and of itself. You know, the idea of registering your religion, the, san the sanctioned sacrifices, you know, it's just brilliant, brilliant. 
So if you look at the show descriptions, you'll see we really go back and forth on uh, what to call it, whether it's fantasy or weird fiction or horror. And I saw someone on Twitter describe it as slipstream. And slipstream was not what I was thinking about when we were making it, because, number one, I think I had a kind of snobber in mind where I saw slipstream as um, fantasy's plotless, pretentious younger cousin that doesn't quite want to commit to being called fantasy. And number two, because for SEO reasons, I don't really think anyone is searching on Apple Podcasts for Slipstream. But the fact that someone had defined it in that way really made me take a good hard look at myself. And Slipstream defines itself as um, the genre that makes the familiar feel strange and the strange feel familiar. And that actually is a, a perfect description of what I think we were trying to achieve with creating a world where the horror doesn't lie in the, the strangeness and the unknowability quite so much as the banality and the unthinking acceptance that occurs in the everyday. This may be my favorite question. Two faces, two mouths. One devours, one returns. Between Carpenter and Faulkner, who devours and who returns? Uh, Carpenter devours, I would say, because Carpenter is just, she's just sick of it, isn't she? You know, she's sick of Faulkner and religion. And I think, you know, the hope has been leached out of her. The end happens and... Uh, okay, I'm going to stop talking because I'm about to start saying things about season two. No more! <laughs> okay, non-spoilers. I, this is really interesting to, question to me because I think it's one of these parallels that you don't realise when you're making something. So the trawler man having two faces, that was just a, a high school geography joke where a river, uh, you know, it, it erodes soil on one side of the bank so it devours and then it returns soil and deposits on the other side and that creates the curve of the river. And so I like the idea of that being something that is the trawler man being a god of the river. He's got two mouths. One sucks up the soil, one returns it. Um, but then, of course, Carpenter and Faulkner are opposites. And I, I never saw them as neatly as being one devours, one returns. I saw it really being as about uh, religion versus faith. So Carpenter's relationship with her god is about her and her god. And other people are a detriment to that. And she almost wants to clear out the people around her so she can just have something pure and meaningful that she can focus on. And Faulkner, while he claims to have a personal relationship, it doesn't work unless there are other people around. You can't be a messiah without people to follow you. And so it becomes very much about uh, faith as a, a personal connection and religion as a community experience. Uh, how do you feel about people using the setting of the Silt Versus, or Askew for this matter, it's going to be general, uh, for their own creative things like RPG settings, assuming they're not selling anything naturally? Yeah, I mean, you're very welcome to. We, we love that. In the same way that we were talking earlier about just feeling so honoured that people are creating art based on the silk verses, whether that be, you know, visual or music. Yeah, so we have not been as good as the Magnus Archives folks are being prominent about it, but it's under a Creative Commons licence, so go ahead and create something so long as it's not for profit, and we'd love to see it uh, when you make it. All right. Uh SJ wants to know, the voice acting in the show is phenomenal. Uh, the casting is spot on. Is there an in-universe logic behind the characters' different accents, like being from different parts of a country? Or did you just cast voice actors in roles you thought they would excel in regardless of accent? Yes, we absolutely cast people in roles that we thought they would excel in. I actually remember exactly where we were when we heard Maeve's uh, audition for Carpenter, where we were sitting and what we were doing. We were going through all the different excellent auditions, but as soon as we heard Maeve's uh, take on Carpenter, that was it. Uh, we knew exactly that she was the right fit 
for that character and it's exactly the same for Mason, for B, for all our uh, main voice actors actually. Yeah, completely. Um, I think as we were casting, uh, Game of Thrones was just finishing and I think I hadn't realised but I'm actually really annoyed by the kind of slight pedantry in fantasy casting where it's really Anglo-centric and it's always, okay, so we're in fantasy world, so if you've got a posh RP English accent, you are the aristocracy. If you've got any kind of regional English accent, you are the lower class uh, plucky underdogs. And if you've got an accent from anywhere else at all, Americans aren't allowed, sorry, Steve, but if you've got an accent from anywhere else in the world, that's only justified if you're from the fantasy version of that country. And it's it's such nonsense because it's not naturalism. Even the Stark actors don't have the same regional accents. They couldn't be a family. It's a, it's a gloss that's based on our ignorance. And of course it exists because it makes these easy, familiar parallels with the real world. But we didn't particularly want to do that. We wanted it to be a bit disrupted and strange. And so it became absurd to go, we're going to put this, this casting call out. It's a fantasy world that's not really anywhere in particular. It's just a generic Western capitalist society. But we're going to insist that everyone needs to have English accents. would have been so stupid and so limiting and would have meant we wouldn't get to work with so many fantastic people. I, I love it. And when I first heard it, my first reaction was... Uh, so I, as an American, I'm, I'm a big fan of the new Doctor Who, or, or I have been. I've kind of fallen off in recent years. Uh, Jodie Whittaker is wonderful, though. Uh, there is an episode of the, day, the David Tennant years, uh, The Daleks Take Manhattan. And, of course, we all know Doctor Who is all English actors all the time. And an episode set in the 1930s in New York. There's just, there's just, it's a gosh golly Seymour showgirl. And then there's the old Southern preacher who's in New York City for no reason. And oh, boss, we'll be here with you know? And it's just like, basically, I felt like they went to Central Casting. Who can do an American accent? Any of them. Doesn't matter. You, 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 you. And that's what it felt like at first. I'm like, this is really weird. And then like, again, once it clicked it, oh, not our world. Rules don't apply. I think you just have to be able to um, to let that go. Like, maybe they have an Ireland in this world. Maybe it's jammed up against Louisiana. We don't know. It's not my business. That's exactly it. I think uh, sci-fi has got a lot better at just ignoring that. And that's partly because it's a bigger scope. Watch Star Wars Rogue One and you go, okay, we've got, we've got all these different accents. No one no one is going, we need to explain where all these characters are from and all these different planets have these accents. The audience just accepts it as part of the set dressing and gets on with enjoying the show. And I think fantasy can really learn from that. Plus, John, I suppose it, it also could play into the what you were saying about this uh, world being so divided. Uh, the idea these communities stick with themselves all the time. I mean, look, I was talking to Mona earlier and we were talking about how I think there's more people in the entire population of London than there is in Ireland. Yet we managed to have a wide range of accents just around the country. You know, it's, it's only an hour's drive between my where my mother grew up, and my father grew up and the Cork and Kerry accent is is completely different, you know. So m maybe it's a little bit more extreme the still verses but I, I think it still works perfectly well i mean my accent is descended from yours like the appalachian accent is the scots irish you know the melding of the two uh both in immigration and in the times when the scots or the irish actually married before the big immigration over like you know if i relax into my actual accent the way i sound when i talk to my family you know it comes out more like this and this is you know and and like if, and, and that's why for me when i you know when i when i reach for like well what would old appalachian sound like daniel day lewis when they made gangs of new york went and lived in isolation and studied how to, what would an early like first generation american accent sound like 
still influenced by the British, still influenced by the French, still trying to find its own way, even like with some indigenous influence, and you get Bill the Butcher. You get that voice that he created that doesn't really sound like any place its own thing. We have one last question, and I honestly think it's the most important question out of all of them. Brandon wants to know, what color are Faulkner's shoes? So Faulkner's shoes are brown because they are caked in river shit at this point. <laughs> we have to remember where these characters have been. They started the, the entire series wading through the mud. Whatever Faulkner's shoes originally were, they are caked in so many layers of dried mud, there is nothing left of what the shoes were. And that's a fair, fair question. And that brings us, family, to the end of the Silt Versus Season 1 question and answer session. I want to thank John and Mona and Maeve for joining us and for being... Number one, I want to thank you for producing this show uh, because it makes me so happy. And um, I think you guys have an incredibly bright future as long as you don't screw it up. But uh, I really... I, I've enjoyed this journey. I know a lot of folks out there listening have enjoyed this. I know our fan base is... I've taken to you guys, but thank you so much for the work you do for the world you've created. And, uh, family at this time, I'd ask you to scoot your chairs back under the table. As you leave, make sure you dust your feet off before you go back out into my green and make sure you don't leave no hats or coats behind. And we'll talk to you soon. Family talk to you real soon.